rather than sing a song and interrupt the train of thought to turn to Revelation chapter 7, because I think what was just said will be a good segue into our into the sermon. Revelation chapter 7. I'm not going to read the entire text from the outset, which is what I typically do. We will walk through this whole chapter. But Jeremy just said, and I think we would all agree, that we learn from Deuteronomy 23 that God is concerned about the holiness of His assembly. Uh, it was The idea set forth there was not just anybody comes into the presence of God, which is also contrary to very much of our culture's thinking, that any time I get good and ready, in any condition, in any state of mind, I'll go to God and, and He had better be there waiting for me uh, rather than understanding, as we see in the Old Covenant, God, God called the people to Himself. And they come to the wilderness of Mount Sinai. They, they are commanded three days before God arrives on the mountain. You start getting yourself ready. The idea is not that we come whenever we're ready and then... God, we're ready now. You, you can come down. No, God is there first. And He says, you, you come and you get yourself ready and then there will be a meeting. And we see this idea, what I, in my mind I'm, I'm conceiving as a similar notion that was set forth at the end of chapter 6 of the Revelation. Remember, that sixth seal took us into the final day, the last day, and the wicked are there calling out to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. Notice the question. And who can stand? I wonder if you considered that before you walked into this room this morning. We're going into the presence of God. Did anybody stop at the doorframe and say... Have we considered what we're doing? Has anybody considered, has anybody thought what's about to happen? Or are our conversations from that room going to come right into this room and just continue on? And then whenever somebody gets our attention, we'll kind of quiet down and say, Okay, God, we're ready. Go ahead. Did we stop and consider who can stand before this God? Who dares enter into the presence of this God? From the beginning of the Scriptures to the end of the Scriptures, the question is the same. This God will be honored and will be revered when people come into His presence, or He will not be there. He's not obligated to come because we decided to put on collared shirts and show up today. We have to think about that when we come to worship. Men in this world, and this is what Romans 1 teaches us, they do everything in their power to shut the truth about God out of their minds. Suppress the truth of God in their unrighteousness. Put it out, forget about it, ignore it, act like it doesn't exist, act like it's not there. But we see at the end of this chapter that there is going to come a day when men are going to vocalize what they've always known in the depths of their hearts to be true. That if, if this is the God that we have to deal with, who can stand? Who dares remain upright in the presence of Almighty God? Especially upright and just flippantly carrying on their lives as if nothing has changed from when I was outside to where I've come into the assembly. Who would dare to venture into the presence of this God? A similar question was asked in Psalm 24.3. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in His holy place? Who can enter into the presence of this God? Now these questions, back in Deuteronomy and even in the psalm and here, these questions assume that it's not just anyone and everyone who comes into the presence of God and maintains their composure. It's actually it's, it's rhetoric. It implies that if, if this Lamb, this God, this wrath, is the one with whom we have to do, maybe nobody should go. Nobody can endure this. This is what the wicked are crying out. Nobody can stand. In their thinking, no one can endure this God. 
Who can stand? And so chapter 7 comes and gives us the answer. Lest the saints of God be overcome, overwhelmed with horror at what they had just heard. Remember, this letter would have been read audibly in the assembly. Lest they are overcome. Chapter 7 comes in to remind us of a very crucial point in the Scriptures. That the saints of God, although we are not immune to suffering in this world, and that... The reality is most of the suffering in this world that's going to come upon us, if we're going to count it as true suffering, is going to be in light of our continual witness bearing and that our plight in the world, even like those who've gone on before us, is going to be to very often cry out, How long, O Lord? In light of all of that, we know that the saints of God will not ultimately be overcome by this this terror, this horror, this suffering. It It can only go so far with us and no further. And then we get a glimpse at the end of this chapter at the glory that awaits the believers. In other words, if you, if you belong to the Lord, you have no, no need to fear this, this day. But the question remains, who can stand? The answer is the saints of God can stand when they come in and through the person and the work of the Lord Jesus. Now before we move any further into this chapter, there are several things that I want us to consider This chapter is, like a lot of the book of the Revelation, this chapter is one of those chapters that is highly debated. So I want to just cover a few little details before we get into the chapter. Notice first, nothing in this section of the book, as it is with most of the book of the Revelation, nothing in this chapter bears the language of a chronological timeline of events. In other words, some people would read this and they would say, well, chapter 5 comes after chapter 4. And chapter 6 comes after chapter 5. And chapter 7 comes after chapter 6 because they read read the Bible literally, you know. And so the problem with that is nothing in the text itself implies that that we're watching a chronological timeline of events. In other words, the revelation is not a narrative. When it comes to, to interpreting the Scriptures, there are several things you ask from the outset. Who is the author? Who is the audience? What genre of Scripture, what genre of literature am I reading? The Revelation is not a narrative. It's not Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's not Esther. It's not Joshua. It is apocalyptic literature. And so we have to read it literally as literal apocalyptic literature and not let our preconceived ideas of what the book is saying uh, be... be, uh, that which guides us into our reading. There are no chronological hints or language. Now you might say, well, verse 1 says, after this I saw. Yes, after this John did see, but it doesn't say that what John saw follows right along the tails of what John had previously saw in, a, in, a, in the timeline of human history. The second thing we need to remember is the, uh, the, the vision cycle trajectory in this epistle. Remember, the, the book of the Revelation is made up of seven visions. They all show somewhat a picture of the same thing. Progressively moving from the present age into eternity, into the eschaton. The way I picture it is, imagine if you had all of church history into eternity laid out before you, but to look at that you had a a magnifying glass that didn't quite span the whole thing. Well, at one point you might slide it down to this end and really see magnified the details of church history. Well, if you slide it down to the other end, you can barely see a blur of the details of church history, but you see greatly magnified the details of eternity. Well, that's exactly what we see in the Revelation. Chapters 2 and 3, the magnifying glass has been slid down to the church. We see these details of what's happening in the churches. But as we work our way through the book, it's like the glass is slid down to where we get to chapters 20 through 22, we barely see anything of the church. All we see is the glorified state and eternity. We've just seen in this vision, we're on the second vision that spans chapters 4 to 7, we've just seen the wicked on the final day, and then it cut off. And now we're moving and we're sliding to where we can see just a little bit of the details of the saints past the final day and into eternity, but still not quite as detailed as we'll see in 
chapters 21 and 22. Thirdly, I want to remind you of the purpose of this letter. Again, because this, this chapter is debated. I would imagine what I'm going to say is not what most people that you've heard have ever said with regard to this chapter. Again, anytime we come, back to a, come to a difficulty of interpretation, we go back to our basics. And one of the questions we ask, who is the author? Who is the audience? What genre of literature am I reading? And what is the purpose of this letter? What's, what's, what are we getting at here? So turn back with me to chapter 1. This is where we see the purpose of this letter. Verses 1 to 3, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave Him to show His servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending His angel to His servant John, who bore witness to the Word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that He saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. This letter, this epistle, is for the servants of Jesus Christ. In our language, we would call them Christians. This is a letter for Christians... And in John's day, as he put pen to paper, the things he was about to record were things that would soon take place because the time is near. No interpretation of this book can be correct if it doesn't fit John's own intention in putting pen to paper under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Verse 4, John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Notice, not that we're in Asia, not that we'll be in Asia, but seven churches that are presently in Asia. Grace to you and peace from Him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before His throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth. This letter, remember, is meant to be a conveyance of grace and peace from God Almighty through the Holy Spirit, through the pen of the Apostle, to seven churches in Asia Minor that were largely Gentile congregations. Now, there might have been some Jews in the mix, but by this time, this this Jew and Christian distinction was almost at its most intense clarification. Early on, especially to outsiders looking in, the Christians, they're mostly Jews. They meet in synagogues. It seems like they're worshiping the same God. They couldn't tell much of a difference between what was a Christian and what was a Jew from the outside. Now, the Christians would have understood the difference. But over time, this this division is more more clearly drawn so that now we come into the Revelation and there are those who call themselves Jews but are not, but are a synagogue of Satan, who are persecuting Christians. They are working to make the distinction uh, more clear themselves. So John, it it would be odd with all that in the back of our minds. For John to write to these seven churches and say, I know times are difficult. I know that you're undergoing persecution. I know that you're suffering. But hang in there because in a few thousand years, a bunch of Jewish people are going to get saved. So, so you know, hang in there. Again, that this vision is given to the saints of God in seven churches to comfort them and encourage them to stay the course, to preach the gospel to remain faithful unto death, to imagine that this anything in any of these chapters, but especially chapter 7, doesn't fit that purpose, is to say, let's just ignore chapter 1 and just read chapter 7. This is for the saints of God. So I've divided it up into three sections. The saints distinguished, the saints described, and the saints displayed. Verses 1 to 3, the saints Distinguished Again, John has just described, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's just described persecution that will come upon the church. He's described economic distress. He's described how the souls of those who have been, who've gone before are crying out how long. He's just described the last day and illustrated, it, illustrated in, in terms of the disillusion of the entire created order. 
It's a blessing for these Christians and for us to know that in all of that, we have a distinguishing mark that will keep us from being destroyed along with the world. They might have heard this and thought, if this is what's going to happen, if the, if the entire cosmos is going to be, be rent asunder, how, how can we avoid? How, how can we not get sucked into this, this catastrophe? First, we see that the final judgment is actually restrained, even now, until all of the saints of God have been sealed. Look at verses 1 to 3. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of God on their foreheads. Now we have this reference in verse 1 to four corners, four angels, four corners, four winds. The number four in Scripture, especially in, taken in this light, the four corners of the earth. The number four represents the habitable earth, the globe. When we look at a compass, we see north, south, east, west. Four directional uh, titles. The wind, and I'm not going to give you all of the references, but throughout Scripture, the wind is used as the judgment of God coming upon a people. We have here these angels who are at the four corners of the earth and they are holding back this wind. They're holding back the judgment that had just been described in chapter 6. In other words, at this point, judgment to come is presently judgment restrained. It's being held back. And they're given this command that no wind... Or they're holding it back that no wind might blow on the earth or sea or against any tree. And then they're given a command. Do not harm the earth or the sea, or the trees. The physical elements of the habitable globe do not bring this destruction. Hold back the destruction of the earth for a period of time. And so, in other words, the final overthrow of the created elements will not take place until this particular time frame has come to an end. Now, what is the time marker? Verse 3, it's until the servants of God the saints, the Christians, have been sealed until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. The imagery is taken from Ezekiel chapter 9 where they're told to walk through the city. Those who are mourning the idolatry of the people are to be marked and everybody else is to be slaughtered. This seal serves to mark out or distinguish the people of God. We'll see this same thing in Revelation 14, verse 1. Another vision of the same thing. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with Him 144,000 who had His name and His Father's name written on their foreheads. So there, the seal is actually a name written. And a name written signifies Ownership, personal identification with the one who has been sealed. So these people are people who belong to the Lamb and to His Father. They're sealed. In Revelation 22, we see the exact same group. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. A name given to them that marks them out as God's Possession. He owns these people. So the seal is a mark of some sort that distinguishes the people of God from everyone else. Now, we'll see this in the weeks to come. Everybody gets a, a seal. Everybody gets a mark. Everybody. The people of God get a mark. And everybody else gets a mark too. But right here, we only seal this, or see this one seal, this mark, for the people of God. Now, what is the mark? Ephesians 1 says, In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, 
who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. The Spirit of God is the seal. Notice it does not say you are sealed by the Spirit. You are sealed with the Spirit. He is the seal. And the Spirit there is given as the guarantee, the earnest, the down payment to ensure that we obtain the final victory, to ensure that nothing can take that from us. The Spirit Himself. If we wanted to put it another way, what is it that ultimately distinguishes the saints of God from a lost world? It's not going to church, because lost people go to church. It's not making a profession of faith. How many people do we know have made professions of faith and walk away? It's not baptism. They walk away. It's not biblical knowledge. They, they, they fill their minds up with but have no love for Christ. It's not external morality. Muslims are moral people. Lost people can, at least for some period of time, mimic these things, but they cannot mimic the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. They don't have the Spirit of God, the seal given by God and recognized by God. And so what we're seeing here is that the judgment, the last day, will not come, will not take place until all of the elect of God have been brought into union with Christ by His Spirit. And even until then, those who have been born again by the Spirit have no need to fear any trial that comes upon the earth. Of course, that would, that would make perfect sense if we think of the practicality of, of what we're seeing. As we said last week, church history is history. What God is doing by His Spirit in the church, that is what's happening on the globe. That's the reason this planet is floating in the universe. It's because God is redeeming saints. And so it would only make sense that this, this history will not come to an end until God has sealed all of His people. This is why Peter commands us to count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Lord, how long? He answers, I'm bringing more in. I'm gathering. 2 Peter 3.15 And he says, The Lord is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. All who? All of you. All of the elect of God who will be gathered in. As Jesus said, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must gather them also. The servants of God here are those chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, ransomed from every tribe, language, and people, and nation by the blood of the Lamb, and in time are made partakers of the divine nature through the indwelling Holy Spirit. Again, the seal is not a physical marking for anybody. It's a spiritual status given to us and confirmed by God. And trials cannot pull us from God. The end will not come until all are brought into the fold. The Lord knows those who are His. Paul says in Romans 8, For I am sure... Remember Paul, he, he had these visions. He said he went into the third heaven. He seen things that he couldn't talk about. And I wonder if sometimes some of this was what, what he was made privy to. And, and, and he says, take my word for it. I'm sure. I know. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We can't be pulled. No amount of persecution can come upon the people of God to wrench us out of the hands of God. No amount of cosmic cataclysm can wrench the people of God from His hand. Now when we begin to think about the, the last day and even the days leading up to the last day, and I, and I believe that the Scriptures teach that things are going to get progressively worse until the end. And we wonder, especially as we see the things that are happening around the world, and our brothers and sisters, we begin to wonder sometimes, is my faith strong enough to endure that? Will I be able to stand through that? When they're pulling my children from my hands, will I be able to stand through this type of persecution? The answer we see is that it's not your faith that keeps you. There is one 
in whom your faith lies. That's who keeps you. And if He's given you His Spirit, He's sealed you, you will endure. He's already marked you out. He's distinguished you. So present trials and the final judgment are powerless against the people of God in an ultimate sense. The second thing we see here is the saints described. And the way the people of God are described here is very significant. First, they're described audibly, what John hears. And then they're described visibly, what John sees. Now again, a lot of people struggle to see this as the same group of people. Ironically, those same people have no issue back in chapter 5 hearing the lion of the tribe of Judah and then John seeing the lamb, two completely opposite creatures, and saying, that's clearly the Lord Jesus. That's the same. They're talking about the same person. Well, we come over here, well, all of a sudden, this is, we can't make sense of what's happening here. That's, that's, that's foolishness. John heard and John saw. What he sees is what he heard. Remember the question that was asked. Who can stand? We've already seen back in chapter 5, the Lamb is standing in the presence of God. The Lamb can stand. If we go back to Psalm 24, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in His holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of His salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek Him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Now we're reading this psalm, and especially if you get into the latter part of the psalm, you you see the psalmist is clearly describing the Lord Jesus, and yet also clearly describing the generation of those who seek Him. The people of the Lamb, where the head is, There the body is also. Christ has ascended the hill of the Lord so that His people can also ascend. And spiritually, we're already seated with Him in heavenly places. The Lamb stands in the presence of God so that we can stand in the presence of God. Who can stand? Well, we already know the Lamb can stand. Now we're going to see the people of God standing. What John hears and what John sees are not separate groups. They're just the same group of people from different perspectives. Now some would say one is from an earthly perspective and one from a heavenly. Some might say first from a historical understanding and then from a redemptive understanding. But we we keep in mind that this vision, back to chapter 1, this vision was given to John by way of what he saw, not just what he heard. And so what he sees clarifies what he hears. It's not in opposition. So first we see the people of God described audibly. What John heard. He says, I heard the number of the sealed. And he heard a number, 144,000. Twelve times twelve times a thousand. We'll see this throughout the book, the number twelve. Representative of the people of God, whether in the old covenant tribes, whether in the new covenant, the apostles, the foundation of the church. The number 1,000 is simply a very large and yet complete number. So John hears 144,000, the people of God described as a very large and yet complete congregation. Now the list that's given here in verses 5 to 8 matches no other list of the tribes of Israel in the Bible. And so if somebody wanted to suggest that this was only a reference to ethnic Jews, they've got, a, they've got quite a bit of explaining to do. That's not saying that they can't do it, but they've got quite a bit of explaining to do, not the least of which would be explanation to the saints in Asia Minor who are being comforted by the fact that a bunch of Jews got sealed while they suffer at the hands of ethnic Jews. Again, it doesn't make any sense. In Revelation 21, we'll see this number 12,000 used to describe The bride of the Lamb, the New Jerusalem, which is, again, called the bride of the Lamb, the church of Jesus Christ from all times and all places. Then we see these people described visibly. Hearing is not enough. John hears and he looks. He's given a sight. Now, if we wanted to go in our minds back to chapter 5, the Lion of the tribe of Judah The root of David has conquered, John says, and I looked and I saw a lamb. The irony is is strong. It's the same thing here. 
After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number. From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Who can stand? Here they are. Clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Now we see this phrase. A multitude no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. Well, back in chapter 5, we heard, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. It's the same group. Notice again their position. They are standing before the throne and before the Lamb. How can anyone stand in the presence of this God? How can it be? Notice they are clothed in white robes. White is the picture of purity, holiness, righteousness. These people are clothed with the righteousness of Christ Himself. These guests, to use the language of the Gospels, these guests are all dressed in the appropriate wedding garments, to use the language of chapter 19. Fine linen, bright and pure. How do they, how do they stand? They have the righteousness of Christ imputed to them. Clothing them, covering them. And this next phrase is interesting. With palm branches in their hands. I'll give you an illustration. Imagine you have a dream. And you're telling somebody about this dream. And you say, I was in my dream and I couldn't tell who these people were. But I saw these, these children and they were sitting on the floor at the foot of what looked like a pine tree. Like an evergreen tree with lights all over it. And they were just ripping paper off of boxes. And your friend asks you, or asks the person, Okay, okay, I think I get what you're saying. What day was it? And you would say, you know, I don't know. In my dream I didn't see a calendar. So I'm not really sure. You would say, based on everything I saw, it was probably December 25th. Right? You understand how that works? In our thinking, that picture only equates to one thing. Okay? What if you were a Jewish prophet and you received a vision from God and in that vision you saw people with palm branches in their hands rejoicing and worshiping God. What day or what time of year would you assume it was? You wouldn't say Christmas because it didn't exist. You would say... I'm assuming it was the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booze. In Leviticus 23, it says, You shall take the first day, on the first day, the fruit of splendid trees, branches of palm trees, and boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. If a Jewish person had a vision of this, they would say, This is the Feast of Tabernacles. This is exactly what happened to the prophet Zechariah. In Zechariah 14, it says, Verse 16, Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Booths. Now, we can take this two ways. First way, the temple's going to be rebuilt, we're going to forget Christ, and we're going to come and celebrate the Feast of Booths every year in Jerusalem. Or, way number two, does the New Testament give us anything whatsoever to explain what is happening here? The answer is, of course, the very passage that we're reading. The saints of God are before the throne and before the Lamb, worshiping with palm branches in their hands. What Zechariah saw, John is describing. The people of God gathered into the presence of God. Just as the Feast of Booths was a time to remember their deliverance from Egypt... So this day will be a day when all of the people of God celebrate their deliverance from sin's penalty and power and presence through the blood of the Lamb. They're rejoicing. The picture here is of a, of a saved people and they're singing of their salvation. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Literally, the salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. The real one, the full one, the one to which the Egyptian exodus pointed to. The real salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb. 
Now that after being described audibly and visibly, the church is described in what I'm, I'm calling historically, according to specific things that happened to them in time. Again, we might ask, okay, so, so what brought you from where you were to where you are? One of the elders addressed me, verse 13, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Notice, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation, not those raptured to avoid the great tribulation. They were in it. They endured it. Just as John himself in chapter 1 verse 9 was their partner in the tribulation. We who remain faithful, even now, endure the tribulation that was just described in chapter 6 that Jesus told us would characterize our world. In this world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. It's, it's going to happen. A lot, of, a, lot of, a lot to do is made about the phrase, the great. Again, linguistically it's insignificant. They're coming out of the tribulation. Now, if you want to describe that as the, the intensifying of persecution preceding the coming of Christ, that's no problem. But these people just endured it. They're coming out of it. Who's going to find themselves in the presence of God and of the Lamb? Those who remain faithful to death. All who endure to the end will be saved. Those sealed by the Spirit. And that sealing will be evidenced by their willingness to endure. What we see here is a picture of the church triumphant. He says, they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. You notice the irony again. Nothing gets white when you wash it in blood. It's, it's a picture. Who can stand? That's a very legitimate question when we consider our state in sin and this God. Who can stand? Sin causes a separation between people and God because our sin is an offense. Therefore, we are an offense to God. It, sin angers God. The question is, what sinner, even if you are only guilty of the least little infraction, just one little sin, what sinner would ever dare approach the throne of the living God against whom they had sinned? If we go back to the garden... Adam and Eve, one little sin. Did they run to God? No, they ran from God. Only those who have had the guilt of their sins removed from them and laid upon Christ, the Lamb of God, would dare enter into the presence of this God. And that's what's being described. When God's Lamb went to the slaughter, He did so bearing the sin guilt of this uncountable host of people. A number so many that no one could count. Through His wrath-bearing death at the hand of His Holy Father, Jesus Christ made a complete reckoning to divine justice and purchased for His people brand new robes, washed clean by His own blood. Only these will stand on that day. All of these will stand on that day. And they will stand because the Lamb has stood in their place and stands there even now as our advocate with the Father. Now if you are not in Christ, this day will be a day of unimaginable horror. And it's only going to increase into eternity as you sink into deeper and darker anguish and despair and torment for all of eternity. And on this day, the judge is not going to ask you, how much do you know? The judge is not going to consider your intentions. He's not going to consider your piety. He's not going to ask you, well, do you believe your good deeds outweighed your bad deeds? He's not going to say, I'll let you in on one condition. Tell me, why is Dan not mentioned and Manasseh is mentioned? you got three minutes. That's not what he's going to ask. All that matters is if you have a real, living, tangible, spiritual union with Christ Himself. That's all that matters. These ones, they have endured. 
They have been washed. They have been sealed. And all of it is owing to the Lamb. The revelation of Jesus Christ. It's His work that has brought them here. They've been washed in His blood. And lastly, we see the saints displayed where we get to see them in their glorified state. In verses 15 to 17, it's important that we recognize here that the glories of heaven are not found in walking on streets of gold. The glories of heaven are not found in reuniting with long-lost loved ones. The joy of heaven is God. It's nearness to God. Now, yes, there are particular blessings that come from being near to God, but it's God Himself who is the treasure. David wrote in Psalm 27, One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, and to inquire in His temple. For He will hide me in His shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of His tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. What did David want above everything else? He said, I just want to be in the presence of God. That's all I care about. I want to be right there. I know that there are blessings that will come from being there. I just want to be there. I want to look at Him. I want to gaze upon Him. That's the hope of every saint of God. If you're a Christian, this is your hope. Not not walking on streets of gold. The point of that is, who gives a rip about gold when God and the Lamb are the light of this city? And it's fulfilled here. First we see the saints described in their position, their, their relationship to God. Verse 15, Therefore they are before the throne of God. They're in the heavenly temple. As close as they can possibly be, they're there. Now again, if we want to read this quote literally, we would ask, how can an innumerable host of people be in close proximity to God in this heavenly temple? Well, we know the heaven of heavens cannot contain God in one singular location. The question is not how do they all get near Him, It's really, wherever they are, there He is. He's dwelling. He has found His dwelling place in the midst of His people. It's no more difficult for God to walk in, to to dwell in the midst of this multitude than it was for Him to walk in the cool of the garden with Adam and Eve. But we see here this, this great chasm that separated God and man in the garden has now been done away with and the people of God are brought back into near communion with God. That's the blessing. They are near Him. They are before the throne of God. Not only do we see them in that position, but we see them described according to the benefits that are bestowed upon them in light of that nearness to God. They serve Him day and night in His temple. Day and night, meaning they never stop. Just unending service to God. This kingdom of priests now enjoys this near fellowship. And this service to God is not going to be a, a duty. Like, oh, I gotta, I, it's my shift this, this millennia to go be in the presence of God. I'll see you guys in a couple thousand years. No, this is the joy. This is a labor of inexpressible joy and love to be there with God and to serve Him in His temple says, He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. They have eternal protection. The very presence of God, like taking the shelter under a rock or a cave in a storm or in the beating heat of the sun, the, the presence of God will encompass and surround every single one of His people. While the wicked are crying out to be hidden and to be crushed from this God, the people of God find His presence to be their shelter. The wicked want to get away from Him. The people of God say, I've got to get closer. That's where my shelter is. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. The trials of life here, described in the language again of a wilderness land, they cannot and will not be harmed, even physically. Nothing can touch them. All of these things will be gone. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. Now there's again an irony. The Lamb is the shepherd. Some of you probably have the Lamb will feed them. 
David said, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. There will be never again any experience of a felt lack. Ever again. Because the Lord, the Lamb, will be their shepherd. Jesus Himself said, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. On this day, Christ the Lord will say our names and we will know Him and He will know us. There will be communion. He will treat us as if we had never spent a day apart. We will commune with Him as if we had always been with one another. There will be no awkwardness of, a, of an introduction. It will just be near friends in communion with one another for all of eternity. Peter referred to Christ as the chief shepherd, the shepherd and overseer of our souls. On this day, all pastoral ministry will be over. Those of us who have labored will turn in our tools and we will join the flock to be cared for with the one who has loved all of our souls more than any man ever could. And He will guide them to springs of living water. As we'll see, the river of life will be the source of everlasting vitality and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The same language that's used in chapter 21. These things are repeated. The tears here point us to every possible source of temporal grief in this life. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. It might be a spiritual struggle with sin. It might be the growing pains of sanctification, the the heartbreak of what feels like impotent or fruitless evangelism. Gone. No more. Mental struggles like the inability to focus when we want to focus or, or limited understanding, limited insight into spiritual things. Gone. No more tears. Emotional struggles being pushed and pulled and torn and stretched by the issues of life. We know we sometimes we're up, sometimes we're down depending on the circumstance. We might sorrow one moment and be, and be joyful the next moment. Gone. Physical sickness will be gone. Disease will be gone. The pains of aging and death will be gone. The loss of loved ones, the loss of friends and that pain will be gone. The idea of death to come, gone. How old will I be when I die? Well, I don't know. Will, will, will I bury my children or will my children bury me? And that, that, that thing inside of you where you wonder, how, how is this going to play out? Gone. Family strife. Gone. Societal ills that plague every human society. Gone. The fallibility of human leaders and our consistently being let down by those in power over us. Over. Ecclesiastical struggles. Gone. The hardships and the heartbreak of trying to love one another, trying to bear one another's burdens, trying to be merciful and yet stern, not knowing how to say what needs to be said in a way that is not too hard but is not too soft. Our prayers for our brothers and our sisters as they seem to be drifting, worrying about the salvation of our children, our co-workers, our family members. All of it gone. It'll be done. The man Christ Jesus will wipe away every earthly sorrow from our hearts and our minds, and all that will be left will be unending, ever-increasing love and joy and delight in the presence of God. Amen. Now if I asked you, because this is the way most people share the gospel, if I asked you, would you like to have your tears wiped away? Who's, who's going to say no? Do you want to go to heaven when you die? Who's going to say no? Everybody wants that. Everything that our culture is doing right now is evidence that people want their tears wiped away. And they refuse to come to the only one who can wipe away tears. Men want their tears wiped away. It means nothing to say, I would like to have my tears wiped away. I would like to have my earthly sorrows taken away. The question is not, would you like your earthly sorrows taken away? The question is, do you desire to be near God? Does the eternal enjoyment of the near fellowship 
of God and the Lamb excite your interests. And don't say yes if you're not pursuing it here. As John Owen said, if you've not had it here, you're not going to have it then. It's not going to happen. A lot of people are interested in a lot of things. But they have no interest in the man Christ Jesus. To them, Jesus Christ is the man who eases their consciences whenever they begin to think of the coming torments of hell just enough so that they can continue to waste their earthly days on themselves, busying themselves with a multitude of useless information and trinkets, slaving away to build their kingdom, and as soon as their conscience begins to get pricked, oh, but Jesus, they don't love Him. They have no interest in God or His Christ because they know neither. And that might be you. You say, I like Revelation chapter 7. It makes me feel good. I was kind of nervous at the end of chapter 6. Things were looking pretty, pretty grim and gloomy, but chapter 7 makes me feel pretty good. And you like it because you've missed the entire point. We will stand with our God. We will stand with our Lamb. I will touch my Jesus. If, if that reality doesn't cause you to desire, to burn with desire, while every other mystery of this chapter, can, you can just run for days. Just, i got to figure it out. i gotta, I got to know what i got to untangle all of the, the thread that seems to be tangled. Rather than, I need to be near my Lord. This chapter motivates me to be near my Lord. Then you, you've got a problem. If you're more concerned about why Dan isn't listed and Manasseh is listed then making your calling election sure through close personal communion with the living God, you will not stand on this day. So ask yourself. This would be a question we can all ask ourselves right now. Am I in the flames of hell right now? Is the final judgment being held back right now? Has a preacher of righteousness made some sort of attempt to set the truth of God before you? Has, does the patience of God still wait as in the days of Noah? We would say, it seems, it seems so. That seems to be the case. And what that means is you've been given one more opportunity to lay down your weapons, to end your hostility against God, to take up your cross, and to follow Jesus. If not, that patience will be used against you in the court of God. God will say, I held out my hands all day long. You sat through those sermons. You heard what was said. You heard what was read and written. You heard it and you did nothing. You satisfied yourself with you know, a hashtag or something. Jesus, you know, you had no desire. If that's you... The Bible says today is the day of salvation, not tomorrow.